I'm Maeve Doyle, and this is A Private View, a podcast series featuring interviews with key figures in the art world, the art market, artists, curators, critics, auction house experts, art dealers, gallerists, curators, and other individuals who are redefining and reshaping the world of art as we know it. The Connor Brothers is a pseudonym for British artists James Golding and Mike Schnell. The Connor Brothers are best known for a pulp fiction series. They take the cover of books and partner them with somewhat familiar slogans, like I drink to make other people more interesting. You'll enjoy their story. It's full of twists and turns. I'm going to introduce you now to Mike Schnell and James Golding, the Connor Brothers. Hello, Hello gentlemen. How are you doing? How are you? Very well, thank you. Are you... Uh, energized and ready for the week i know you've got a lot on and we are yeah i think yeah we are we've um we've had a busy time haven't we we've just come um from the back of a uh, a project that was curated by giles peterson last week in stoke newington and um there were two two children um who took their own lives from um stoke newington high school so parents and the school got together and they set up a charity called safer place which is set up to promote awareness of well-being amongst uh, young people in the school but also in the wider community and and so they asked Giles Peterson to come in and to curate a series of talks and to create a pop-up shop selling books and and music and um, and so they invited James Avell and Goldie and various other you know, really interesting artists and and uh, they asked us to participate as well and and we did a talk and we sold a print edition and they did the charity and um, yeah, so we've just come off the back of that, haven't we? Which has been, which has been busy, and it was cool. Yeah, it's a busy it's a week. Point. Yeah, I think yeah. there's been a lot of talk lately in the last twenty years about the art world being a lot of, about money and making money and flipping art. And I, I've the Connor Brothers have been in my awareness since I guess 2012 when the article came out in the Telegraph about who you were and what you were doing. Before mm-hmm. that, I knew your galleries and had watched what you'd been selling and had always been a fan. I think the redeeming quality about you being in the art world and being prominent and, and visible is that there is a sense of wanting to change things and make the world a better place. Firstly, if anyone doesn't know the Connor Brothers' work, it's witty British humour, uh, really visually pleasurable pieces to look at with paradoxical kind of meaning on them words on them things that make you think and uh, i'll just hand it over to mike right now to say something disparaging to me about how i described it hopefully no not at all not at all i think that was a lovely uh think it maybe yeah but i think it was a lovely explanation so we're going back to calm and about uh, your work with calm and it's a it's a an issue in the united kingdom i mean more men under the age of 40 die from suicide. Yeah, it's more from suicide than anything else, than heart disease or cancer or violent deaths or road accidents. Suicide's the biggest cause of um, death in in Mananza 45. And I think when I first investigated this or heard about this, I was at an auction at Maddox Gallery and Professor Green was there with you. Mm -hmm. He spoke openly about his father dying when he was, I think, 24 from, from... from suicide and and uh, and and it just seemed like it seemed unnecessary if things could be talked through and the moment passed and the mood passed perhaps this wouldn't be something we were losing is it 80 men a week it's 84 yeah it's 12 men a day so and there must be countless others who attempt suicide 
Yeah. So in fact, that figure, although it feels big, is not representative of the number of people who are struggling. And I mean, the statistic is also four times higher if, if you're uh, a gay male, or six times more likely if you have a drug habit. You know, and so of course, when you live in London, yeah. these things are always everywhere, and it's part of an artistic community to want to experiment sexually and with drugs and and be open-minded and and not be regimented in the way you think. So a lot of people we know because we work in the art world, miss the gray area where it's, where what was an experiment becomes a problem. It's difficult to talk about this. I don't know how to really talk about it, but in the art community, people do are more likely to experiment with things around sexuality and drugs. Am I wrong? I mean, do you know what? I don't, I don't, I don't really know. I just think that you know, I think people take drugs for different reasons. You know, and some people take drugs to party, and then at some point the party stops, and you know, people are either able to to go home and leave it there as a party, and other people don't have a you know an off switch. And I was one of those people who never really had an off switch. And I think for me, whilst a lot of my experiences of taking drugs were fine up to a certain point, you know, for me, I was definitely self-medicating. You know, and so I grew up in an environment where. I certainly found it very hard to communicate about um, the condition of anxiety which I was going through from around the age of kind of 11, 12 and that coincided with my kind of experimenting with drug taking at that time and um, you know I very quickly went from smoking fags and drinking to taking solvents to smoking pot to acid to you know the whole the whole ladder and whatever was available I would take and I learned from a very young age that you know for me it wasn't the same experience as it was for a lot of other people, you know, and I came through terrible depression after being out and all that kind of thing. And so, you know, I guess people get involved different. And you ended up with heroin. And yeah, the top of that, I guess if you can call it that, yeah, ended up with, you know, a full blown heroin addiction for, for five years, you know. And that, it, um, I hear what you're saying, and it's, and so many people are going, going through. I guess what I'm saying is the art world offered you a way out of all of it creativity in the art world yeah, and I guess did, that's I mean, why Stoke Newington and what we did with Professor Green yeah. uh, and the reasons Goldie's involved in it and you're involved in it Professor Green's involved in it is is there is another way to go through all of those struggles without self-harming in the same way yeah of course I mean you know when Mike and I started making art we were doing it really to make each other laugh you know Mike's mental health was poor at the time and um you know, actually mine wasn't really great and so when we started making these works they were they were silly and they were fun and it, there wasn't any kind of overarching grand plan for us to do things in the art world it was just something that was lifting us out of difficult times and also it helped us to kind of talk about difficult issues with a kind of irreverence you know which I think for some people is a bit of a struggle isn't it but for us we've forged this sort of method between us in our relationship whereas it's, it's almost kind of like a survival method it is like a survival method it's like nothing's off the menu either yeah. is it we can kind of joke about anything joke your way about any any kind of subject and and so that's where the work kind of started and um and i guess it you know that allowed us to to have dialogue you know the fact that the work was humorous allowed us to be able to talk more comfortably about things that you can't talk to other people about you know talking about what it's like to want to kill yourself or to you know, inject drugs with homeless people in public toilets or whatever the subject matter was, no matter how dark, you know. Um, so really, I guess the point is that it enabled us to, to have dialogue and to have expression about these things that are difficult and, and the expression about those subjects 
uh, it's healing to go through that expression, you know. In, not, in the same way that talking about it is. Exactly, it's another exactly form of expression. Way. Yeah. But it's actually harder to yeah. talk about than to make something about it. Is To make something is easier than to talk about yeah. it sometimes. And most people find it a real struggle to talk about these things. I also think it's important to say that like, it's, it's the um, acknowledging vulnerability is seen as a weakness in our society, and that's a problem, you know? You, you know, it, it's part of all of us to be vulnerable and be able to, you know, express that to each other is, is part of having a, you know, a, a better mental well-being. Especially amongst men, right? It's not yeah. really kind of acceptable to say... I'm freaking out today and I'm not really no, I'm entirely depressed. sure why or I'm depressed or whatever it is, you know. And, um, yeah, you'll be kind of derided for that. And that comes back to Calm's work, really. Yeah. And Calm is campaign against living miserably. Um, and their work is about overcoming stigma with the idea of reducing the number of male suicides. How do they approach their work? Is it phone lines? I mean, yeah. is yeah. it creative? Is it art classes? Is it... Yeah, I think it's, it's a mix it of everything. Therapy? You know, obviously they have Professor Green as a patron and I think it's having an open dialogue about it. So there's one element of it that's reducing stigma and then there's another element of it which is a helpline, uh, which is open every day, which um, which men can call who are, you know, suicidal or, or struggling. And weirdly, how many how many calls do you think they get a day? So I'd be, I'd be guessing. Yeah, I've got no idea. Can I let you open up and tell us more about what you're doing and why it's so important for you to do political work as well as artwork that you sell at, at Philips. Like last night, your piece was at Philips. People were photographing it and everywhere we go, someone wants a Connor Brothers piece. So is, I guess what I'm saying is the energy to do the work that you do is all consuming. Where do you get the energy to do everything else? I think, like, as artists, you're really privileged in terms of, one, if you can make a living out of it, I mean, it's incredibly lucky. And the other thing is, you also have a platform. Um, and for better or worse, you know, you get to use that platform for things that you care about. And so I suppose for James and I, coming from a background where, you know, I'm from a family with mental health problems, two of my brothers tried to kill themselves in the last two years, that you have a responsibility to then kind of um, use that platform to raise issues that you know or to, to support you know charities that you care about yeah and I think that when you you know when you work as artists certainly we were you know you, you're able to, to go into a room and you're able to take something that has a relatively low kind of material value and you're able to turn it into something that you know is worth so much more in sort of monetary terms that can be useful somewhere and I think we learned that from a fairly early on didn't we that we could that we could do that kind of thing um most artists struggle with that I and mean, there's a lot of people who are probably in their 60s and 70s and they're painting and drawing and they've never made a penny from yeah i mean i don't there uh, are we, did, we didn't kind of neither of us grew up thinking that we wanted to be artists you know um i don't think i'd ever been to a museum in my childhood i don't think it was just no. not a thing we did was go to galleries and stuff so we kind of fell on it really yeah it was really accidental so perhaps we maybe don't have the same level of attachment possibly i don't know but you came from the business world the art business world a little bit yeah. i mean i remember reading an article about you mike saying that you were doing really well working with a book publisher i think Something was going on with the book yeah, publisher. And a, you were a making print, a print publisher, print publisher, was, so, making yeah. lots of money, and you were giving it away to people on the street. Now, this obviously was a newspaper article, 
Um, sorry for no, Googling okay. you and researching no, no. it. But what you're basically saying is conventional success wasn't going to make you healthy mentally, emotionally. Absolutely, yeah. I, I felt really uncomfortable making money and not having a cause. So, you know, being artists who, you know, are successful in the terms of you can pay your rent from, from making art, I feel that, you know, last time that I, I made money was busy in the art world, I really struggled with the idea somehow. And I think it's, for us, it's healthy mentally to be able to support things we care about is part of looking after our own mental health. Yeah, absolutely. It makes but, you understand it. It makes it make sense. Like, why yeah, are you doing this? Yeah. And a big reason is if you can support things that you really care about. And I suppose we've given ourselves freedom, haven't we? Freedom in terms of flexible time and being able to go and engage in things. I was like when we started talking about Calais, you know, and talking about the refugee camp there. And at the time, and we were, we were talking a lot about how the kind of negative political rhetoric at the time, talking about swarms of migrants, for example, didn't really tally with the images that we were seeing of you know clearly very desperate men women and children climbing over fences and jumping to the back of lorries and um jumping on top of fast moving trains and that kind of stuff and so we were like well why don't we just go yeah and you could go the next day yeah know, we just rented because... a car and made a fake press pass each didn't we mm. and then just just went down there and you know saw immediately that it was absolutely not how the newspapers were talking about it and just i just do something about it you know and that's when we teamed up with um pussy riot Nadia from Pussy Riot and um, she helped us to fundraise and we collaborated didn't we and what did you do what did you do with her what was the team up what was the result of how did you what what did we, you make do have what made the money Mike well to change things or was it this didn't make raising? the money but Mike wrote a song <laughs> for Nadia that we we essentially there's a sort of you missed it Mike just people say that we covered his face people say that we exhibited at Dismaland you know we didn't we we kind of weirdly curated Pussy Riot's yeah, performance at Dismaland you know we produced it and that was pretty complicated my, my song and, rhymed yeah which, yeah yeah that was quite an sure. it wasn't I don't know if it's the greatest piece of yeah. writing we, I still think I you should done. go into if anyone know, doesn't know who, who Pussy Riot is can you do like two sentences to bring them up to speed. They're the uh, Russian activists who did a performance in a church and, you know, ended up in prison for a couple of years, became kind of icons, really, and that, you know, still are, really. And weirdly, actually... They weren't arrested for anything other than doing something that the state didn't want yeah, them to do. Yeah, it was, it was so a they're performance. they're quite innocent. They performed yeah, a punk they're very song political. Church, they're very yeah. political. Yeah. And, um, and we've been friends with them for quite a long time. And actually, weirdly... Two weeks ago, Nadia's husband got poisoned. Peter, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he got he poisoned did, in yeah. Russia. Because um, they did the World Cup thing. They, they ran onto the pitch at the World Cup to raise awareness of, hey, we're all in Russia doing this thing, you know, but we're forgetting that, you know, Russia has a really bad human rights record and no press freedom. So they were trying to highlight that. And then, like, a couple of weeks later, he got poisoned. <gasps> and he was so part like of a... the amazing political sort of street art group in Russia called Voyonya, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. And they had that really famous piece <laughs> yeah, where there was brilliant. a drawbridge in Moscow and they'd, they'd painted a huge cock. Can I say cock? Yeah. Penis. And yeah. when, the BBC, when, 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 the, when the drawbridge went up, it... Um, it was on the Kremlin. This was on the Kremlin, yeah. Um, so yeah, they oh, on the Kremlin. Great. It was yeah. really cool, yeah. yeah. It was really cool. But brave. I mean, it's dangerous to do things like that in a country like Russia. 
So you're a bit, what you're saying, though, is they went to prison, continued to do their work. Yeah, yeah, they're fearless. So when you teamed you know. up with them, what was the arrangement? What was the body? What did you do? How did we, you... we helped them organise the Disneyland thing, and then they worked with us. Glastonbury on, star. We, we did something at Glastonbury, yeah, that we organised them getting a tank, didn't we, in a Kalashnikov rifle to do something yeah. with at Glastonbury. And, and then they helped us to, what did we do? We sold print editions, didn't we, to raise yeah. money. And I think we, we raised maybe, I don't know, 40 or 50 grand. And we bought sheds, didn't we? Yeah. And we went over to, we spent about a year in Calais and we went there and we built shelters, sheds shed. for the communities it, living there. You it's because it was so slow. The first couple, yeah. couple of times we went, we joined other people's building projects. But there's such huge need there that they were just prioritising certain people. So if you were like a young man, you could be in the, in the jungle for a year and never have anywhere to stay. So we sort of happened on the idea of getting sheds because you can put them up so quickly. It was really it's like quick, an hour and a half, it? two hours to put up a shed, whereas the other shelters yeah. could take three or four days. Previously, we'd been out there with a team from Cambridge University, hadn't we? And that it was, was dreadful. Just, it was the worst experience ever. And well, don't take academics. I to don't, yeah, zones, no, there was a riot at the time, wasn't there? Yeah, there was a proper full-on yeah. riot. Well, actually, that's right. a good question because I was going to ask you, how do you bridge the gap between the work you sell and who you sell it to to what you really care about? That's a really complicated question because... And, and we know, I'm talking about the red carpets, the schmooze... Well, the, it's more than that, The even. collector it's, base, it's... these people maybe are I don't want to say the... I mean, the people collecting your work aren't the people you're working for. I mean, some, sometimes they are, you know, sometimes they're successful individuals who want to support a cause and there's, there's loads of people like that. But, you know, the art world is, is traditionally funded you know, by big corporations, some of whom have checkered histories. And at the moment, there's a real kind of, as part of, I suppose, people being more aware generally, and there's the Me, Me Too movement, everything, mm. people are starting to not want to show in galleries who are sponsored by corporations who have um, an unethical past. So so the question was, how do we bridge the gap, bridge the gap between those? I think it's really difficult. I think it's I think it's always been a problem that, you know I think that's fair. I think it's just really You difficult. can't choose yeah. necessarily who buys your work. Having said that, you do meet loads of people who do great things, who who buy art and are just cool people. You know? I think yeah. the big point is trying to connect with people who will listen to you and you started there and it wasn't a trap I was setting up. I think when you said initially when you're an artist people will listen to you, maybe it does break down barriers between who can afford to buy your work and the people who are living in places like Kali and the refugee camps because basically all of them are listening to a voice that you're speaking on behalf of them and on behalf of what I mean I don't we're going back to your Gandhi self-consciousness now but maybe in a way starting the conversation is yeah, doesn't no, matter I think who really you're true. talking to I think that's really true because you're in the art world I, I know where you're getting at now because the art world's quite a rarefied world you would have thought not necessarily those conversations about mental health or the refugee crisis are part of that rarefied red carpet world. So it's true that but as, maybe as artists, I mean, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is for some people. Yeah. You know, but what you do get is to take your causes into an environment where maybe that conversation is not being had. You know, for for whatever reason, you know, about mental health or whatever it is. Yeah. You can then take that to an audience who's not necessarily talking about it. And actually, you know, it's yeah, you're really right, especially with mental health. You know, you're always surprised at who will respond to you when you speak openly about it. Every single time you speak openly about it, whether it's in a red carpet event or whether it's on a radio show or whether you're doing a talk somewhere, people are always surprised you and come up to you and 
respond and saying that they've been through similar experiences or having a different type of experience that's somehow related. And, I think it's a um, massive um, relief. Thing. And that's part of the whole stigma, really, the, the whole stigma that, you know, you can't talk about it, um, but actually when you do... Yeah, if you share, people yeah. share back their experiences. Like if you're struggling and you say to... Because there's this stigma that, you know, if, you, if you're going to say to someone, look, I'm you know, having a terrible time and depressed, that, you know, you'll get laughed at or something, but it never really happens, you know? No, I think there's also this consensus that if you were mentally well... At right now in this yeah. hi time in history, there'd yeah. also be something quite wrong with you. Yeah, depending so on your environment, though, I guess you know maybe it's different if you're a fourteen-year-old boy at school, or if you're a thirty-four-year-old guy working yeah. at J.P. Morgan's in a room full of lads making money. You know, maybe you know. It's, oh, he's got tentacles but, everywhere, hasn't it? Mental yeah. health, like it's yeah. when you find that when you speak about it, almost everyone's got a story. You know, like my mum, or like my brother, or myself, or whatever it is. Everyone, you know, like has some sort of mental health story, even if it's not about themselves. And you yeah. realise it affects kind of everyone. Yeah. But it's this underground thing and, you know, it's difficult to talk about still, but it affects all of us in one way or another. It's like the oldest debut. We were talking about it on the way over, weren't we? Yeah. Saying that, you know, certainly, you know, our parents or my parents even, you know, brought up in the north of Cambridgeshire. You know, there are lots of communities out there, like there were in many parts of England that were completely decimated in the war. And, you know, so certainly for like my dad and his generation, you know, they had parents and uncles and friends who, who you know, had, had their legs blown off in the war. And those were real problems. So certainly the idea of talking about, I just feel anxious today and I can't get my head around. Yeah, as a man. Is, that, as a man, as a man, yeah. that's not an acceptable thing to talk about. And we're, you know, we're not I know, that. Yeah. And so actually we talk about the war and we think, oh, that was forever ago. Yeah. But really, yeah. the, you know, the repercussions of that is very close. It's still happening know? now. You know, that it we're is, still yeah. feeling the effects of the trauma of the war. We've been about this all week this is our sort of new thing that we've been talking about is that actually you know you've got incredibly traumatized people you know suffering really the worst things a human being can suffer and seeing the worst things and then coming back having no help and expected to parent Happy. in a rounded way you know mm -hmm. and so then you know often they brought up children with their own problems because they weren't necessarily the best of parents you know although they, they tried they and then it affects our generation so we're only two generations away from the war so our current theory is that there's something, you know, to do with the trauma of the war that's affecting mental health now. This is, we're not very concrete on this because we only talked about it in the taxi on the way over here. <laughs> but it's our new sort of idea yeah, yeah. is that, like, actually, are we really feeling yeah. the effects of the war still, you know? We are looking for money for research, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure what the research would be. Yeah, yeah. just some field work somewhere. Yeah. No, I think my parents had memories of it. And I remember sure. definitely being told off for having any kind of emotional problems. Like, what are you complaining about? Everything's fine now. Do you know what we lived through? And you're right. It, you were just brought up to feel guilty about having problems. Honestly, because why would thing, you have problems? Yeah. And I, we just we started the show by saying I saw the MIA documentary. Yeah. I really week. want to see it. Yeah. I think she's brilliant. Brilliant. So I didn't realize her father was a Tamil tiger. Yeah. And, and she was... On I a think boat she's great. Coming she's over an her. artist who has become successful and really represents. You know, she, she's a you know a, a perfect example. However, the press become went successful for her. and then turned it into something really great. Yeah, and you know why she made the documentary? Because the press turned on her. She married a Bromf a Bromfman from the Sea Room's Fortune, and the press, the New York Times, right. the press just turned. Saying on what her. that she was? Um... She was meant to stay a refugee. Right, and yeah. never be able to enjoy the life that she yeah. was brought to. Or choose and to love, said, fall in love with who she wants to fall in love with. Correct. And she said, you know, I'm making this documentary because I have to get out my feelings. Yeah. I'm going to go 
crazy. No one will let me speak. I think she gave a middle finger at a Madonna thing at the NFL. Right. And they were, I think they were, they fined her a, a fortune for it right. in the States. So the documentary is something you have to see. Her, yeah, the person I, I really who made it, see, Stephen yeah, Loveridge. Yeah. Anyway, I would recommend if you don't know the Connor brothers, please go and see their work and, and let you get on with your day. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to A Private View with me, Maeve Doyle. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye for now.